Hey there, thank you for tapping over. You know, either by intention or by just absorption from the culture, we like to think that today we are quite different and quite distant from our past. The ancient world is so foreign to us. In many ways, we are radically different and quite apart from the times of horses and sails. And as much as I opine about the ancient world, study it, and then bring up some of its virtues for use today, you certainly would not find me going back to live in that brutal hellscape. But that brutality that's so apparent to us now hasn't actually left us. And we as beings and the culture which our societies have emerged out of, in some places, aren't any different at all. It's just depending on where you look. Take the recently paused civil war in Ethiopia, the blockade starving out the people of Yemen, with American support, mind you, widely covered atrocities in Afghanistan, or the slave markets alive in Libya. These are just the better known ones. All the while, countless more atrocities are being hidden away unnoticed. Like in North Korea, where one does not even have ownership over their own shit, literally their own excrement, because it belongs to the state for fertilizer, punishable by death. We haven't escaped our brutality. We've just gotten far better for some of our societies at creating distance for ourselves from it. And we've become so good at it, We don't even know what's happening. By proximity, we do find ourselves living in a place without any of the brutalities found in the ancient world. None of them are staring us in the face. Other parts of that ancient world are entirely out of our ability to comprehend and are still alive and well in some places, but are just more foreign. Like how in that ancient world... There was a fusing of the government, family, and religion so fluid, it was impossible to draw the lines between them. Religions as we see them operating today, with their seat outside of government in a state-sanctioned temple, was an invention born not entirely out of the Founding Fathers in America, but emerged alongside a Christian faith that by nature of its core philosophical tenets, provided its followers a different perspective to view the world, one which put government outside of the church. There were ideas of virtue that we now see their morality so much as the norm, it's indistinguishable from from our default compass of what good and bad is. The followers of Christ went about their lives with such intentionality that they did not throw off the virtues that stood for a moral guide before them. Instead, they just added their philosophy onto them. Early Christians resolved themselves, rather stoically, mind you, to live their life with intention in the way they act with others, see others, or move about a civil society in which they have no choice but to live in, and a society that has zero understanding of their Christian philosophy. And quite flatly, that society wants no dissent or difference in the status quo. 
And that amazing push and pull that happens somewhere between conflict, avoidance, victory, and defeat, the descendants of Jesus' ideas moved masterfully to ultimately not just continue to thrive within their environment, within their society, but to utterly transform it. The strong ripples of that still engulf us today. See, with early Christianity, intention needed to be there. Without intention, the cultural momentum in place would have kept things just as they were, wrapped up in the religious order that it eventually did replace. See, Christians weren't in positions of authority in early Christianity. There wasn't an apparatus set up to keep pressure on folks, to keep traditions alive, to keep donations flowing. That all needed to be created, created within an order of the world that was stacked up against these early Christians. But they found a way not just to survive, but to thrive within it. Later, much closer to our own time and within our time, that feature of mass culture came into play, much as it was in the religious and governmental order before these Christians, And some of this intentionality of being a Christian and embodying that philosophy has fallen out as a pervasive feature. As all movements seem to go, intention or effort needs to be there in place at first, or it'll never continue as a movement. Then once it's fixed and steady, intention is replaced by just the automatic expectation by the culture. Think of Christmas today. Do we practice any religious rituals on the day anymore? Is there even an expectation to regard the holiday as anything with intention? See, what I think is missing a lot today is that intention. In what has become and is becoming of a new religious zeal in our time, whether it's a pursuit of profit, descent into base pleasures, or political ideas contorted and packaged as immovable truths, the intention behind all of these things has utterly been co-opted with social pressure, acceptance, or something else that we're trying to chase or run away from deep inside of us. Whether it's flaunting a new car on Instagram or waving a flag at a rally, the why behind these motives is eluding us. The consistent regularity of our world and lack of shared meaning or intention has left a huge opening for anything else to jump in. Because if intention was there, the reality of our world and the uncomfortable complexity in it, whether it's the unimaginable suffering required to make a cell phone or Tesla, or the utter hypocrisy and madness inherent in a crowd's decision-making ability, All of it would get called into question with just a simple question of, why are we doing this? These are the questions for today, and the unintentional reality of what we're living in. But in this episode, what you're going to hear is about back then, an abridged version of the rise and embrace of Christianity into Western society, government, and starting near its inception. Then we're going to butt right up into the Middle Ages, all with returning guest, Professor Steele Brand, who's going to walk us through it all where he lays out what religion and government was like in that ancient world, how Christianity got started as a movement, 
the virtues and ways of life and thinking it added to our collective sense of morality, how the followers of it evolved their own community into a religion and ultimately into the government or outside of it. While this may seem abstract at first glance, I think you'll hear many quakes of the history and ideas that come through into today. Thank you, Steele, for coming back onto the pod, and thank you all for listening. Wherever this finds you on our blue dot, I'm wishing you well. Hey, real quick while I have you here. If you like what you're listening to, please tap that follow or subscribe, as well as sign up for notifications so you'll know when our next season or episode drops. Also, if you're curious to look at our catalog of all that we have to offer and some exciting things we have to come, please visit us at bandwidth.productions. Um, Cool. Well, yes. Well, like we were just saying, thank you again for joining us. uh, you don't have to introduce yourself since you've already done an episode and I'll uh, call back to it in the intro. Um, but I do want to ask you a out of the realm of what we'll be talking about, maybe question, and then we'll uh, dive into it, which is like the first time I asked you, what do you like to do that makes you happy? I want to ask you what you've done this past week that's made you happy. Ooh, that one's really easy. So <laughs> twice a year, I take my five daughters out camping it's really lame camping and that we just go to the backyard. Um, you know, it's what, but you know, when you get a, a four year old and a six year old, it makes it easier that way. But we, we love it because we live out in the country. So we're kind of already camping out and, you know, out, out in the wilderness, you hear the coyotes and the, the deer and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, so we do that for like three or four weeks. We just leave the tent up, we go sleep out there and then we go, get to go eat breakfast either inside or outside. And man, it's just, it's so fun. We get to hang out. I tell them scary stories. We read books. Right now we're reading A Thousand and One Arabian Nights. Uh, nice. Which, oh, that story, it's just so good. It's so good. Yeah. So we're, we're really enjoying it. Yeah. Everything from the legend of how it kind of came to be all the way through each one of the, the nights of the stories. It's, it's pretty captivating. Yeah. Um, five daughters, bless you. Is that, are all your children daughters? They are. So we, uh, oh, they were until what? About a year ago, we had, um, we call him little man, but he's, uh, he's my son. He was, we, so we, we don't, we haven't found out for the last three. So he was quite a shock when he came out and we were like, oh my gosh, what's that? What is that a boy? Do, do we make boys? Do we, do we have that possibility to create boys? And lo and behold, it was a boy and uh, he's fun. He's going to be so spoiled. It's ridiculous. Yeah, he's going to be very special, the youngest boy amongst all girls. That's good I for know. him. All the mamas. Yeah. All the mamas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he's going to be uh, probably tough and very in touch with his emotions. That's going to be great. <laughs> Let's hope so. I've got my work cut out for me. For me. i got to make sure that uh, he's tough the way the way a man should be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep the, the balance of testosterone in the house a little up. That's, that's right. Yeah. Um, well, great. So I know we're going to kind of dive into kind of Christian, Christian statecraft and kind of the evolution from that. And I'm just going to go off of kind of the notes that we were going back and forth with it. Um, you know, I guess kind of the first thing, if you want to just give us a premise on, on what you've been working on uh, with Christian and Christian statecraft and kind of give us a, a layer into, you know, what is like government or state 
Like, what did they consider that back then in that kind of late antiquity, early medieval period, which I think is kind of the, the time frame that we're talking about? Okay, so I'll, I'm going to divide this. I'm dividing it in my mind into two parts. The first is the question of, you know, what am I doing right now? And that kind of sets up our conversation. And then the second is, what, how does a Christian view the state? And I'm going to go back to a couple of texts, I think, that will help us answer that question. So what I'm working on right now, I am a postdoctoral Garwood, uh, uh, not postdoctoral, a Garwood visiting fellow at um, Princeton University of the James Madison program. And I'm working on a project that asks the question, what is Christian statesmanship? How is it different from classical statesmanship that preceded it? And then how is it different from what we would sort of think of as statesmanship today, which has more of a secular uh, tone to it? I'm a historian, so I answer the question by narrating the story of Christianity. I start before Christianity and the Roman Republic. I think that's when there's sort of this coalescing of um, the ideas from both the Greek and the Roman traditions of what a good statesman should be. I'm particularly interested in in Polybius and Cicero, who are drawing from Plato, Aristotle, Thucydides, others. And then I move into uh, how this is reshaped by Christians themselves, starting, of course, with the person of Jesus. And I think it's the introduction of the theological virtues, which don't overthrow the cardinal virtues. So cardinal virtues typically being like wisdom, temperance, um, courage, and justice. Those are still there, but Christianity adds these other virtues that are necessary, and that's uh, forgiveness, and then, of course, the, the traditional three, faith, hope, and love. It also adds some theological concepts, but I I can address those later. So it adds on these new virtues, and they say that's how the statesman, that's how the leader, uh, including the political leader or the leader who um, interacts in the political sphere, should that he should embody both the cardinal and also the theological virtues. So I see how Jesus reshapes this, and then I'm going to explore how do Romans and Christians negotiate this, their times of peace, But there's also, of course, those famous times of persecution with the Roman Empire, which doesn't really understand, for good reason, what a Christian is and why they don't seem to get along with the political world of the Roman Empire. And after that, I'm interested in looking at some of the early exemplars and telling their story. So the six that I'll be looking at in this uh, this book manuscript are St. Nicholas of Myra, the guy who's famously known as Santa Claus. He was actually a historical person. He has a fascinating story. Uh, there's uh, St. Martin of Tours, St. Patrick of Ireland, uh, Radigund of Poitiers, Alfred of Wessex. And and we should know, give a shout out to Alfred of Wessex. Today is his feast day. So that's uh, it's important to remember he died on this day, 899. And then uh, Margaret of Scotland. So that that's the project that I'm working on. Uh, and that's what I've got. I'm up to my elbows in the writing right now. Let me go ahead and answer the other question that you posed, which is, how does a Christian view the state? I think we could spend a lot of time talking about this, but what I'm going to do is just read two portions out of the New Testament. I've got them open here. That give us a, a pretty good conception of how um, a Christian views the state. It tells us something, but it leaves a lot to be desired. And I think you'll see that when, uh, as I read them. So the first one is from a letter that the Apostle Paul writes to the people who are in Rome. So, I mean, gosh, it's the center of the Roman Empire. And here he has these seven verses in this 
13th chapter of this letter. It's just the epistle to the Romans. And this is what he says. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Okay, so that's Paul. And then I'm not going to read this next section, but I just want to highlight a couple of things that Peter writes. So Peter's the famous Peter, and I have a whole chapter on Peter. And I, I, com- I contrast him and compare him to Pontius Pilate, the famous Roman governor of Judea. And I just want to highlight a couple of things that Peter writes when he's writing a letter to Christians. This is a little bit later, and this is when there's been some hostility with the Romans to a certain extent, but more importantly from the Jewish local authorities, uh, particularly in the eastern part of the Roman Empire, that, that and Peter's writing to them amidst this sort of tense period where there's a little bit of persecution, not from the Romans as much as from the Jews. And he describes Christians as sojourners and exiles. This is 1 Peter 2, uh, verse uh, 11. And he talks about a lot of the same things that Paul does, but there's a little bit more of an edge to his writing. But he talks about how people should be uh, subject for the Lord's sake to every human authority. And I'm going to close with this passage. Uh, this is 1 Peter 2, 17. Actually, let's do Let's start off with 16. He says, live as people. He's talking to Christians who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So if you ask, what is the state according to a Christian? I would say that doesn't exactly give us a, a nice, concise answer, but it does give us a starting point for how a Christian views the state. And man, it is pregnant with all sorts of nuance and complexity. And how the flip do we apply this? Yeah, no, definitely. uh, I'm having a hard time almost parsing through how they distinguish serving the state and serving God and and kind of how they divide those two. Um, Yeah, that's interesting. Well, I think what they would say is, and you see this both in in Romans and Peter, you also see this in the life of Jesus, particularly in the in the interview that he has with Pilate. There's a really long section in the book of John. But they see that you have political authorities, and I'm using the term political pretty loosely here, not in the sort of modern category of a very narrow definition of political authority, but the, those who are in public office that are overseeing the, the government, in, in this case, the Roman Empire, and then uh, the local uh, political entities uh, like the, the, the local council, for example, in Jerusalem. They see them as ordained by God. They, they're put here by God. So a Christian says, they start with a presumption that we have to obey political authority. They don't start like Thomas Jefferson does with 
you know, this notion uh, of uh, certain rights and certain obligations that the that the the state owes, but more importantly, there are certain rights that are inalienable. That's not where the Christian begins. The Christian instead sort of presumes there are these governing authorities; they exist, and we should obey them. But there is a higher authority over these Roman emperors or Roman governors or local councils, and they set those standards of what justice is and what human beings are and how all human beings should be treated. And that's sort of where we get later, much, much later, this Christian account of things like rights that, that Thomas Jefferson is talking about. So they're presuming that we need to be you know, good players and good citizens wherever we are, if at all possible. But what if the Romans, so you go back to Romans 13, what if a Roman authority wants to promote evil and punish good. So invert what Paul talks about. Then you have the tension, the dilemma that exists for a Christian. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. It it it, uh, it kind of calls back. I, I can't recall off the top of my head the inheriting the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and it almost seems as if the what I'm understanding the the Christian kind of base ethic that we're talking about here, insofar as government is, you know, obey the government, continue on, and you know your lot. But remember that you know, your higher authority is God and your, you know, what your aim for is the kingdom of heaven, which comes after this life. Is that a fair kind of assessment right. or am I, am I getting closer? Yeah, it is. It is. And now there are things that are distinctive to Christianity about that belief, but they're not completely contrary to notions that had already existed at the time. And let me just give you a couple examples. There are the famous examples from Plato um, and it, it, he seems to, it, it seems what Plato is doing with the Republic and with a number of his other dialogues is he's examining the breakdown of the polis, this sort of, uh, this fundamental entity of Greek political life. And he's seeing how it, it self-destructs, particularly this happened with uh, the Peloponnesian War and then the execution of Socrates, which was a supremely unjust act but it was legal. It was legitimate in the sense that the democracy sanctioned it. So there's something wrong with the polis. Not only is it losing its wars, it's losing to the Persians, but it, in this case, the polis is also has become unjust. So Plato is sort of doing this thing where he transfers the polis to the soul. Well, maybe you can't have an ordered polis, which is the community that we've always had, the way we do politics, the way we live community together. But maybe you can have, that's disordered, but maybe you can have an ordered soul. And that's kind of what he's doing with his Republic and the other dialogues. Now, that's really abstract, and there are a lot of complications with Plato. I'm not going to talk much more about Plato, but I'm going to move forward to Cicero. And this guy's right. He dies about 40 years before Christ is born. So he's applying Plato in the Roman Republic and the world of the Roman political system in which uh, Jesus is born, or right before Jesus is born. And he has this, he's got this beautiful portion of his dialogue based in part on Plato, where he's got three Roman statesmen. And one Roman statesman falls into a deep sleep. And in his sleep, he dreams of his father and his grandfather. And his father and his grandfather take him up into the heavens, into the cosmos. And they show him, hey, look, look at the perfect order of the cosmos. Look at how it sounds. Look at how it's beautiful. Look at how there's no discordance. Look at how magnificent it is. Oh, and hey, this is where we reside in this perfectly just ordered realm. So this is just ancient astronomy, okay? 
And then he says, okay, now look down and look at the city that you want to conquer. They're talking to Scipio Emilianus. This little city you want to conquer is Carthage. Look how small it is. Look how great Rome is. It's actually not that great. It's small too. It's this tiny little place. And so what, what Cicero is doing in this dialogue is these two old men who have died and are sort of in the cosmos are taking this guy who's living in a dream up into the cosmos to say, look how insignificant all the things you think are so significant are. But what your job is, your job is to try to make this perfect order of the cosmos occur down in, in the world. And one gets the sense for Cicero. Cicero sets up this dialogue because he thinks that Rome has the ability to perhaps create this sort of perfection in the world, and Roman law can be totally just, and the Roman Empire can create total order. And he actually argues for this a couple of times uh, in, some, in some ways that might make us a little uncomfortable, but he's, he's kind of making what becomes just war theory. But in its, in its bad version, this basically becomes the Roman Empire is this perfect analog between the order of the cosmos and the order down here. Well, we know that's not true. I mean, Tacitus famously says, yeah, well, the Romans create a peace, but uh, what they, it's actually a desert. You know, they, they, they make a desert and they call it a peace. And that's, that's what really happens. So you've got these ideas already in existence. Plato's using them. Cicero's using them. There's the, the, the ideal world of the virtues and the order and we want to try to make that happen down here on the earth. It's not just people achieving, you know, glory or fame or acquiring material possessions. Uh, there are abstract concepts, but the question is, how much can we make these work on earth? Well, Jesus comes along and he's got this great dialogue with Pilate. Peter and uh, Paul are writing to these Christians who are confused about how this works. And they're saying, look, you are never going to achieve that perfection. Never. The kingdom of God, that ideal world that's similar to what Plato and Cicero talked about, the kingdom of God, it's real. It, it, even though it sets up the ideals, it's, it's real, all right? Because humans have a soul and they, they, they long for that. But down here on earth, those things are never going to be perfectly applied. So you sort of are always living in a tension. You have your eyes on the kingdom of God, but you're doing the best you can for people in the kingdoms of men. So what Christianity like, firmly establishes is you are always in tension. And that really is the, 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 the most clear sort of uh, uh, concept that they're bequeathing to statesmanship is that there is this tension with applying those theological and cardinal virtues. Man, there's so much in there that I love. Um, I've been reading a lot of Cicero lately and a lot of Plutarch, actually. Um, I, I can't, uh, I think it was Cato that Cicero was talking about, where he was talking about how Cato wanted uh, to have such strict morals and virtues um, at all times, but he didn't realize that he was living in, uh, I, I read it in Tom Holland's book, Rubicon, recently, uh, essentially yeah. saying that Roman uh, is, is a cess Rome is a cesspool and you're trying to uh, clean out something and you're kind of... Uh, not rooted in reality and what actually you're working with, um, which is interesting the way that you're framing it in which that Cicero was kind of intentionally trying to find a way of a happy medium between this, you know, divine ideal of what is good and ordered and uh, just and what kind of what we're dealing with in Rome and doing the very Roman thing of saying, now how can we apply this to all of the, the places we can conquer and order the world through our uh, justice and our right cause? Um, that's fascinating, uh, especially how Christianity almost is an iteration towards, not a direct iteration, but an iteration towards kind of squaring those two together. 
Um, if, if we pause for just one second, what is Christianity at this time period? So we have this, this person named Jesus, uh, you know, it was crucified by the, the Romans and the, the interplay there, the historicity of it. Um, and then what is it during this time period when there's kind of the, how you put it, the Christians negotiating with the Romans, kind of what is Christianity at this point? Because I personally, I always like reading about when Nero was trying to persecute the Romans, or I'm sorry, the Christians, and kind of the way that Romans were talking about Christians then, and they were kind of confused and didn't really understand them. Um, but kind of what is the sect of Christianity? Are, are they referring to themselves like, as Christians quite yet? Um, and, you know, Paul kind of starts the organization. Is, is that kind of when the, the more Christian flock starts to take, take hold? And then when does that negotiation between Christians and Christian ethics start to infect the state and uh, influence it in some way? Right. Um, so there, I think we could, we could look at this from two two different angles and i think it would be helpful to do so i mean the the first question is so what do christians say they are at this time and so we're looking at the first century a.d christ is probably born around six we're not entirely certain he dies sometime between 27 and uh, i think it's 33 astronomically speaking we can we can guess which dates it might be might be based on some some evidence in in the gospels as to like a, a star that is is probably uh, emerging of some planets, and so we can actually kind of time when these be. And there are several instances which it can occur. So maybe he's you know in his thirties when uh, when he dies, or maybe he's as old as forty. It just depends on who you ask. And this is the time when the Romans are have become an empire. Octavian has become Augustus, and we have an emperor. He calls himself the Princeps. And the Christians them view themselves in a certain way uh, at the beginning. And then this slowly changes the more they interact, particularly with the Jews. So that's sort of one approach that I'll get to in just a moment. And then I'll probably pause to see if we, if we have any questions. But then there's something else we should get to, and that's um, what do the Romans think of the Christians? So if you're a Roman and you're looking at this new sect, uh, you're not coming at it from the same perspective. And that's what I think is so fascinating about this is uh, uh, what, how do the Romans account for what Christians are? And it's not for a couple of centuries that we actually have a pretty full understanding. It's really not until the third century that the Romans understand who the Christians are and what they're doing. Up until that time, I think there's a lot of, First of all, just dismissal. The Romans aren't interested. And then second of all, confusion. And it's not really until the end of the second century that the Romans are like, okay, we understand what the Christians are saying and what that has to do with us. So let me just identify a couple of things that Christians uh, would say about themselves. First of all, they would have all started with by either being Jews or accepting certain aspects of Judaism. So this is uh, the sacred text being the Hebrew Bible or what Christians would call the Old Testament. There's this view that God has created the world and he has a special people, Israel, but he's the God of the entire world. And there was an entity, Israel, that was, was in existence for uh, hundreds of years. It had its heyday under David and Solomon, and then it got conquered by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And now there are people that are in the Roman Empire. And the Jews are uncomfortable with a number of features of Hellenistic and Roman life. Some Jews want to get rid of the Romans. Uh, some Jews have sort of made their peace with the Romans and they're getting along with them, but there's, there's a tension. The Jews don't really get along with the Romans. But the Jews 
are recognized by the Romans as an ancient people. They may not like what the Jews believe, that there's only one God uh, and that he is this like creator of the world uh, and all the other gods don't exist, but they recognize the antiquity of their beliefs. So the Romans sort of say, we're going to allow you to continue to be thoroughly Jewish and we're not going to push our paganism on you, at least not too much. Now, a guy like Pilate doesn't quite understand that. And several times he blunders into error with the Jews. But for the most part, the Romans just want peace. They don't want rebellion. They don't want taxes. And so that's that's the way they view the Jews. So when the Christians emerge, they say, yeah, we're Jews. And there's this guy, Jesus. But Jesus is explaining there is a Savior that's going to liberate you. And the more radical are thinking, yeah, this Savior is going to kick off the Roman yoke. And it's going to bring back the heyday of David and Solomon. And Jesus says, no, that's not the Messiah that the prophets have talked about. That's not the son of David that has been written about in the Psalms and the historical books of the Old Testament. And again, in the prophets, the son of David is actually going to point you to the kingdom of God and reconciliation with the creator God. And so the Christians add an element to Judaism that not all the Jews accept. And so we have a severing between Jews and Christians at this point in time. So then what makes a Christian different from pagans and from Jews? I think we can summarize the theological points. I'll give you maybe three or four. One is that only God is eternal. So Jews would believe this as well. Pagans would not. Pagans believed the universe was eternal. The Neoplatonists in a couple of centuries are going to going to really tease this out, but Plato basically is making this argument. And the Jews say, and the Christians would say, no, no, only God is eternal. He creates all the material universe, and the universe has a clear beginning as to humans. Okay, so that's a little different with paganism. The second thing, and this is where Christians are going to be different from, from Jews, is they say God is three in one. There's God the Father. He's the originator of all things. There's God the Son, who brings into being all the things that God the Father's talked about. And there's the Holy Spirit, who indwells and gives life to everything. So there's one divine substance. Christians are going to talk about this for hundreds of years. Uh, how do we identify this as the Trinity? But there's one divine substance, and there's three persons. So that's different from Judaism, and it's very different from paganism. Romans are going to be like, what are you talking about? God is a person? That's just odd. The, the, the Roman philosophers think this is just, it's just nonsense. And then they're going to, both Jews and Christians are going to say, based on those two ideas, mankind is made in the image of God. Okay, we can, we can understand that given those two. Now, here's the really, really, really controversial part that Christianity adds that both Jews and pagans would disagree with. God becomes man. He is incarnate. He becomes a baby. He's born to uh, a virgin. There's no sex involved. There's just a sort of, there's a, there's some sort of miraculous conception. And uh, this embodied God is Jesus. So God wants to reconcile himself with humanity. And so the son comes down and is embodied in the person Jesus. And the story of the gospels is how Jesus' ministry and life reconciled God with humanity by sacrificing himself, just like you would have in all of the uh, Jewish and pagan sacrificial systems. You've got this notion of the sacrifice being necessary. But in this case, it's God sacrificing himself to reconcile himself to God. Now, again, this is a really controversial claim for a whole host of reasons. If you are either a Jew or a pagan, but this sets Judaism, uh, Christians out as something that is distinctive. Now, Jews recognize this right away. And that's why it's the Jews 
who are eager to rid themselves of this wonder worker, this miracle worker who's making these claims, Jesus. And that's what prompts them to have Pilate execute Jesus. Now, Pilate is on the fence. He actually doesn't think Jesus is guilty of anything. But because he's not a good governor and he doesn't practice even the cardinal virtues, he executes Jesus. But it's not until Nero that the Romans identify, okay, Jews and Christians are something different. In fact, the emperor Claudius expels Jews and Christians from out of Rome because the Christians are just this little sect within Judaism. Nero, however, there's a fire that rages through the city of Rome in 64, I think, and uh, he, needs a, he needs a scapegoat, he needs a culprit, he needs someone to blame because some people think he started it. So it's really Nero is the first Roman emperor to give Christianity a distinct status apart from Judaism and as something that is, that is um, illicit, something that is criminal. Now, there's no like worldwide or empire-wide persecution, nothing like that for Nero. What makes Nero so important is he actually identifies Christians as something distinct, and they have an illegal status, at least with regard to this problem of the fire of Rome, which he says they caused it. So we've got 30 years about from the death of Jesus, where Christians and Jews are arguing about those doctrinal points that I mentioned, until Nero the Roman emperor, and now we have the status within the Roman empire where Christians are distinct from Jews. And when the Jewish rebellion happens at the end of Nero's reign, it's very clear Romans understand Christians are not Jews. This is a Jewish rebellion and Christians are something else. And the persecution of Christians maybe begins in earnest, maybe a little bit with Domitian, but it's not until the second century when the Romans are trying to deal with the problem of uh, of Christianity. And for that, I think we would need to look at the perspective, the question of who Christians are from their perspective. But I'll pause to see if, how that how that settles with you, if, if you have any questions or if that makes sense. Well, that all makes sense. And it's really fascinating to give that perspective. Um, kind of layering onto it and, and to hanging on that last point, how common was that type of occurrence of either? So like I'll, I'll split it into two. Um, one, you know, the Roman state, in this case, the Emperor Nero, uh, recognizing a new distinct religious sect almost, uh, or did they see, and then I guess to kind of clarify that question, did they even see them as a religious sect or did they kind of see them as like a pseudo race tribe type of thing? Um, trying to give some understanding of what the logical construct was like, you know, nowadays we just think of religions, but was it the same back then? Um, and then the other part of it, you know, how frequently were, you know, religious or, you know, tribal kind of, uh, tribal for lack of a better word, associations emerging or, you know, kind of creating that new at that time was the fact that even Christianity kind of emerged from Judaism. Is that a novel thing? Um, or is that something that was, you know, not, you know, unheard of, I guess. Yeah. So the way the, the Romans, this is a great question. Let me let me start by identifying. Okay, what is a what is a religion? A reli- we could take the term the the Latin term religio, and it, it basically can mean a couple of different things. It can mean like specific scruples regarding sacrifices, or it can it can sort of approximate the virtue of piety, which is having good faith to the gods, which then informs having good faith with um, your family and with your neighbor, and then with the republic or the the empire at large. So that that's those are the first two ways we could sort of define religio. It can also just be 
uh, referring to all those things that are seen as transcendent or sacred or holy. So the the use of the term religio in the, in the ancient, really even in the medieval world, is very different than the early modern definition that emerges, which is, um, okay, we have this, this sphere of religious uh, things, and that has to do with how people view God and their religious practices. And then we have politics. Uh, and then eventually, after with the scientific revolution and the enlightenment, we have you know the, the sphere of economics, and we have like this like different f- spheres of society that we could sort of break apart and categorize. It's sort of all the rage to categorize everything uh, after the scientific revolution and with the enlightenment. That's a very different understanding of religion. Some people would say that definition, that modern definition of religion, really doesn't even make doesn't actually work, which is why some people are so religious about politics today, or they bring a religious fervor to politics. I don't need to get into that, but it's just, it's important to note that these are two very different concepts. So uh, in this sense, like the Romans are going to like religio, that being religious or being pious is going to inform everything you do. I mean, if, if uh, you, if you honor the traditional gods, and this is what's important for the Romans, if you, you honor the traditional gods, then you will honor your ancestors and you will be uh, devoted to your father and to your mother and you will be devoted to your family and your kin. You will be devoted to uh, the gods of your community. And so this is this is the way a Roman would think about things. And that's why, um, for the most part, the uh, the Roman aristocracy, they're both the senators, they are, and they're also the priests, and they're also the guys who are leading the armies in battle. And this is true uh, uh, throughout the, the Roman Empire, uh, not entirely, but for the most part, especially with the Romans themselves. So it would be it would be nonsensical for them to think, oh, well, this is a religious thing we're doing. No, no. If we have a feast in honor of you know Jupiter, uh, this is you know, this is what binds our people together. This is a political act as much as it has you know religious aspects to it. So when Christianity, when they approach, let's just say when they approach something like Judaism, they say we don't really like this, but it's ancient. It's their traditional God. We're going to allow it, even if we think it's weird that they only have one God. But they didn't see Judaism as particularly problematic when they. Um, took over, this is under Pompey, when they took over uh, the uh, Judea, uh, because it didn't need to lead to insurrection. An example of the of the opposite is when, and this is during the time of the Republic, there is a, an, a sort of an Eastern or a Greek uh, religion informed by some um, Eastern aspects, comes over into Italy. It's the the Bacchanalia. It, it's the, uh, the, the, the sort of the, the certain rites and rituals involved with uh, the god of, of wine and mischief, Bacchus, Dionysus. Uh, they are highly alarmed at it. In fact, there's a giant scandal that erupts. Uh, they, there's a sort of a, a, a high-priced prostitute that uh, is you know, providing services for a young man who says, well, we can't have sex for a while because I'm getting involved in this like this uh, this new group that my parents are, or my my step my father in law my mother are making me get into, and then she asks about it. She's alarmed. She goes and tells a senator, and then there's they launch a whole investigation, and so it would almost be like an investigation that uh, Congress would launch with uh, you know the steroid outbreak in, in Major League Baseball. We got to get to the bottom of this because there's some sort of problem. So they investigate the these people that are involved in these rights, and they discover they're alarmed by it because they think 
these rituals and these rites aren't patriotic. They're secret. They're mysterious. There's death. There's there's sexual deviancy. And so uh, this is in the early second century of the Roman Republic. They actually outlaw aspects of this, what they see as a really, really bad religious sect. So you can be a member of the cult of Mithras, or uh, you can worship Isis, or you can worship whatever, but you this this can't be disruptive to social life. It can't uh, cause problems uh, within sort of the fabric that binds the world together. So the Romans are familiar with these kinds of uh, these kinds of mystery religions. That's what they'll be identified as. And when Christianity first emerges, they see this as a sect within Judaism, and this is. There's these these riots over Crestus, I think is the first time it's referred to. I think it's in Suetonius that occur between Jews and, and Christians and pagans there. And it's just, it, it's annoying. And so, but then when, when Christianity is clearly seen as something that's distinct from, uh, from Judaism, well, then maybe it's like kind of like a mystery religion. It's a new, uh, it's, or it's, it's something that just has it, it, a bunch of gullible people buy into. But eventually, and this is when we get into their, their understanding in the second century, they start to understand, oh, no, this is like a new philosophical sect. And when they move from, this is just uh, people with some weird rituals that, you know, they're odd to us, but as long as they pay their taxes and they're patriotic, we don't care, to, oh, no, this is a very, very different notion of how the world functions. And it could be problematic because it's introducing a rule of life and an ethos for civic engagement that could be in contrast to the Roman Empire. And this is where in the second century, we have the beginning of Romans really wrestling with what is Christianity? Yeah, that's fascinating. Something to just kind of give a little bit more color. And so before we kind of go into the, the, if you want to go back to it, or we can move on to something else. uh, The Romans view of of Christians um, is just how much, and this always fascinates me with Rome. It's, it's, they're so good at finding efficiencies it's almost like their social efficiencies came out of how much they tie their familial ancestry and then the ties that that brings to other people in like a client sense, um, you know, your your clan and, and your family and, and I kind of your order within society and your uh, devotion or allegiances to those, as well as the religious side of things, you know, like how you were saying, like, you know, Julius Caesar goes up for a high priestess or a high priest role, right? Like the the people who yeah. are actors in state, actors in the military, and actors in religion is all one kind of mixed thing. Uh, that's that's why I'm calling it kind of efficient in a way. Uh, and then they allow other things to emerge, like you were just describing, so long as it doesn't threaten the hierarchy of of who's kind of in charge. Um, and that's always so fascinating to me of how much it, the the sense of religion applying it to the Romans is in our sense kind of taints even using the same word because of how much family state and religious kind of uh, rituals are all mixed into one type of thing. Um, that is, 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 it's almost, it's, I mean, it is, it's completely foreign to the way that we think of things now. It is, it is foreign. It, it, it's a different way of life. Although I think there are certain, I think civic ideologies in the West, particularly in the United States, that have begun to in, sort of take over the way people view everything. I think you see this with race, regardless of which side you stand on, on the, on the race question, um, you know, with racism, anti-racism, um, et cetera. It, it's, it's a 
an ideology, a view of the world, there's a sort of a lens through which to see the world, and then it it colors every single issue if it's you know economics if it's education if it's who should run for office if it's how should i interact with a person in the grocery store so i think if we view this is why i really like the term rule of life you i i think we even today have uh, sort of silly examples of people who adopt the rule of life so someone who really gets into like, I don't know, riding a motorcycle. And so everything they do is like, has to do, and they have patches for how they ride their motorcycle. And everything they talk about is riding motorcycles. And that's what they do on the weekend. They almost create a rule of life on it. That's sort of a silly example. I, I, I'm not opposed to riding motorcycles, but I'm just saying that's an example of someone who like takes something, creates a rule of life out of it. But then you also have things that have very clear political manifestations. And I think that's particularly in the United States. What people talk about with identity politics and how one views race and one's identity, and it does in, in affect how um, you you have all of your public interactions and how you have your own private musings of, of your of what makes you important, what makes you special, what gives you purpose. And I think the Romans, the, the Romans aren't, or in the Christians, aren't so distant from us when we sort of look at it from from that example. And this is why. If, if if you'll indulge me, I'd like to get into what how the Romans actually come to to grips with who the Romans are, what who the Christians are in the second century. One thing look, I want only one thing I want to yeah, say is ahead. how much I completely agree with that. Like everything you just said is great, and I think that's one of the things that I find so virtuous about studying history is you start to unravel the trends that emerge from just who we are as beings and that type of like mixed canvas that we were just talking about of all these different pigments that kind of go together of uh, between state religion ideology is is totally echoing into today the the thing that i find most fascinating about it and then i'll definitely uh let you continue is how back then it was intentional and now it's emerged and it's intentional in some sense but it's and and almost like a virus because it's just taken over without us being self-aware of the fact like the fish and water thing again right they don't realize they're swimming um that this is a, a type of emergent behavior that, you know, can, mm. can happen in which it can affect the way that you kind of view everything into this type of absolute terms, but that's for another time. Uh, let's, let's go continue on to the Roman view of Christians. Yeah. I, I really like that you, that you brought up the question of intentionality. I think that it, it very much is that there's this, there's this ease with which the modern life, particularly with technology allows us to unintentionally sink into not merely habits of behavior, but habits of thought. And so yes. uh, I, I think that's what naturally happens. And before people know it, they've sort of bought into, you know, whether or not they should really love someone like Donald Trump or whether or not they should really uh, hate things like, you know, critical race theory or whatever. It's it you you're there's almost not even cognizant of the kinds of decisions you're making. You're just sort of taking things in that you get through technological devices instead of actually having a proactive approach of, OK, what are the most fundamental what are the fundamental things that should govern my life? What do I believe? What is true? And how should I structure my life around that so it's not accidental or unintentional, but it's extremely intentional? And I think I'll use this as a segue to, I think it's when Romans realize there is an intentionality to Christianity that could threaten us, that we have the famous conflict between Romans and Christians, which in the movies, 
they're highlighting, you know, what's sporadic and what's punctuated. If you, you know, if you particularly look at the movies in the fifties and sixties, like Quo Vadis, I mean, I love these movies or Ben Hur, um, or The Robe, I think would be a better example. And then the, the follow on Demetrius and the Gladiators, not as good, but they're highlighting these, these, uh, moments where there is persecution of Christians. Now those happen, but for the most part, that's not happening very often. Um, so we do need to acknowledge that it's not like Romans are always trying to persecute Christians, but there are sporadic incidents that, and it intensifies as the, as the Roman empire interacts with Christianity and as Christianity spreads. So I, I think it's, it's important to ask the question, why did the Romans come to have this hostile view towards Christians? Well, let me explain this a little. So we have a, a letter, and this is from Pliny. Uh, two, we have a set of letters to and from Pliny and the emperor Trajan about well, what do we do with this group of people called Christians? So Pliny is he's out touring his provinces. He's a very good Roman governor. We have his we have his whole body of of letters. We would hope that almost all governors would be as meticulous as concerned with justice. Uh, as uh, as scrupulous as he is, we, we, he's, he's a good example of, of a, a good kind of governor in the Roman Empire. But he's got this problem and that there are conflicts that emerge with Christians. And you already see this in the New Testament. So the, the stage is already set. If you're looking at this from a Christian perspective, Christians will come into an area and if they attack like meat that's been sacrificed to idols as being bad, well, then they're undercutting a seller of meat sacrificed to idols, and that disrupts the economy in a local area. Or if they're saying uh, in Ephesus, yeah, your temple to Artemis and all of the trade and behavior around that temple, which is basically an industry, is idolatrous and wrong and evil, well, you're attacking people's livelihood. And so uh, that's going to cause problems with you know the guild in that area that re- that relates to, if you're the butcher's guild, that relates to the meat that's sacrificed to idols or, or you know the people who are making the idols for the homes or whatever it may be. And so it causes problems. So Pliny sees this kind of problem. And traditionally, again, you see this in the book of Acts and in the New Testament, the Romans would just would separate the Christians from their uh, their opponents. They would try to adjudicate and they just want to clean the strife up, remove the chaos and have the taxes paid and no rebelliousness. So Pliny sees these kinds of problems and he knows the sort of the history of how Rome deals with these kinds of, of conflicts. But he, he, the problem is there are lots and lots of Christians, and they're they're growing. They are seem to they are seem to be almost like this cancer that is spreading. So he's trying to get a sense of is it actually a cancer? Is it dangerous? Is it a virus that's going to overtake? How bad is it? And he so he writes to Trajan about this. He even captures a couple of what are called deaconesses, and he tortures them for information. So plenty doesn't seem so good here, but he discovers that they're not sufficiently patriotic. They mm. don't want to participate in the civic life uh, just like all the other people would in the empire because like Jews, they are monotheists, but there's this proselytizing fervor to Christians and there's this lack of distinctiveness to Christians. So a Jew wears certain things, does certain things, looks a certain way, practices certain things, but a Christian's they're, they're different. They can just like spread out. And a lot of times you don't even know who the Christians are that are in your midst until you have a problem. And so he writes to trades and he asks, what am I supposed to do with these people? Because he's rounded some of them up. And basically the mentality is 
they should be punished if they don't want to have a civic ethos and worship the traditional gods. But don't hunt them down. Don't accept anonymous accusations. Trajan tries to be as uh, as uh, as lenient as possible, but he's very clear that there's something wrong with Christians, and if they're just ardent and that they want to reject the traditional gods, then they need to be persecuted, deprived of their lands, and if necessary, of their heads. And this is the beginning in the second century of a an empire-wide categorization of who the of who the Christians are, but. We're, we don't have a policy that goes out all of a sudden and everywhere throughout the empire. Now we're going to have Christians persecuted. But we do have the legal framework for the Christians to be punished. And this is going to pick up over the second century. So you've got two philosophers who engage Christianity because a guy by the name of Justin Martyr and several others have written letters to the emperor. And these are elite Christian or these are elite members of the empire. They're well-trained, they know Greek, they know Latin, and they're writing to the emperors. They're making very good arguments. There's Justin Martyr, he references Socrates and Plato, the classical cardinal virtues, and he explains why Christianity is really good for the empire uh, and how the rumors you've heard about us are not true. And so these philosophers, these uh, particularly Galen and Celsus, now have to engage Christianity on a philosophical level. It's gone beyond some weirdos that we don't quite understand but that are possibly part of a mystery religion or a sect or just Jews, but now they have a different rule of life. And Galen and Celsus are, are they, they have a, a list of accusations. Christians are gullibles and, fuse and fools because they believe that the universe came out of nothing. That, that's nonsense. We all, we all know the universe is eternal. They believe that God could become man. That's silly. That, that, that God doesn't become man. They believe that God can violate the laws of nature. Jesus conducted miracles, and that there's the resurrection. They believe that Jesus was God. That's silly. I mean, he's poor. He's humble. He's inglorious. He dies on a Roman cross like some random slave. Uh, he's not even given a feudal, uh, you know, a fitting, you know, end like some, you know, glorious general who got too successful and the emperors had, had forced to commit suicide or executed him. No, no, he dies like some petty criminal, and. This, so they're all nonsense, but they've got this philosophical system. So we've got to point out why they're philosophically wrong. And we also have to point out they're traitors and insurrectionists because they refuse to participate in the civic rituals of the empire. They refuse to honor the traditional gods. And most importantly, they refuse to do the smallest of things like pinch incense on behalf of the emperor and the imperial cult. And that in the second century lays a very, very firm groundwork legally and philosophically for why Christians and Romans are cannot coexist peacefully. It's not always there in the second century, but the groundwork is laid for any emperor or provincial governor to come along and say, this is why it's acceptable for us to persecute Christians. That's interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, it's super interesting how uh, it really is still follow the money. Once the Christians start uh, coming ahead and affecting economics, things start to kind of shit starts to get real. Um, but one one thing I want to just as an aside, when you were bringing up the kind of the differences and how it's harder to spot Christians versus Jews, um, Alan Watts has a really great uh, metaphor or analogy that he uses for Christianity, and he's he calls it uh, Christianity being Judaism stripped for export, in the same way that Hinduism is Buddhism. I'm sorry, uh, Buddhism is his, is Hinduism stripped for export. Um, and I'm not necessarily saying I agree with that, 
it's just an interesting framework of of kind of the the divergence between the two and uh, kind of comparing and contrasting them. No, that's a good point that you make. I, I this I've I've heard this in in um, in a number of different ways. Uh, that that the pithy form of that statement is is great, and there's truth to it for certain. And this you see that debate within early Christians, because some early Christians want to maintain the Jewish dietary. Um, Circum, uh, Jewish dietary restrictions. They want to maintain circumcision, uh, all the attributes of the Mosaic law. They want to maintain as much as possible. And had that been the case, Christianity would not have spread the way it did. Right. Right. But in the, in the language you just explained, but instead they stripped away those things and made it easier for transmission. And it's Paul that makes this possible. It's his, it's his writings, uh, his, D- disputes with even sometimes people like Peter and then some of the, the Jews, particularly in Jerusalem or the, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, but he says, no, no, we, we need to, we need to strip this stuff away. They don't need to be circumcised. They can eat anything. Like we, they, there's even a debate. You can eat meat sacrificed to idols. Um, if you're okay with that, but uh, uh, so that even makes them a little uh, more, uh, amenable to pagans, for example, right. although so, he says some Christians, if you're not comfortable with it, that's understandable. You don't have to, but he even opens up that possibility. So it's not just they can eat all the bacon they want now, but it's also <laughs> that they can eat things that are, are were previously seen as, as anathema. And by opening this up, Christianity can spread. And at first it spreads mostly among women, among slaves, uh, among the poor, because Jesus is, was and someone he wasn't poor, but he was middling, uh, but he was obscure, he was humble, and he uplifted the poor, uh, and he gave opportunity. God was as much the God of the poor and the woman as he was the God of a Julius Caesar or an Augustus or anyone else. And this is this is really appealing. Christians give the oppressed, the disenfranchised, uh, those who would never, the, the minorities, if you will, of the empire, uh, a, a, a way to find community, to find meaning, to find purpose, and to understand who they are and how they fit into the grand scheme of the cosmos and that they're important to God who came down for them. And that's how it begins to spread. By the second century, like I mentioned, we have people within the elite, the intellectuals who've been converted to Christianity. And now they're making these sophisticated arguments that reach perhaps the emperor's ear. We don't know if Justin's apology or apologies um, make their way to the the emperors that he writes to. But they were certainly circulated at the court. They're engaged by uh, subsequent pagan philosophers. And then we start to have, oh, we have wealthy women who are, are uh, become Christians. They're using their houses as house churches. We have wealthy men who start to become Christian. Soldiers are becoming Christian. People in the imperial court, by the time we get into the third century, uh, we have these large-scale martyrdoms because we have bodies of soldiers or we have uh, people at the imperial court that are Christians. And this is when the concern over Christianity reaches kind of like a fever pitch. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Um, I had a really interesting discussion with uh, Dr. Diane Stewart from the pod, actually, um, talking about if Christianity, how much of it was Paul's religion versus even Jesus's religion, uh, which is always an interesting kind of point of who organized and kind of set it up what we think of it today. Um, but but kind of continuing on with that, so it, it's starting to reach a fever pitch because those in the elite are starting to adapt Christianity. 
So when does the tide turn in kind of the view of Christianity? Is it not until Constantine? Was it already kind of building up that way? Was Constantine's, you know, ordaining of, of a Christian empire? Uh, I don't believe it was, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Was it kind of uh, cast already? And was he just the one that, you know, finally brought it there? Was it already heading in that direction? And then are there ways in which the, the government changes more than just from shifting towards Jupiter to, to God and, and uh, having to resolve religious disputes uh, between these different sects of Christianity, unifying a, 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 a flock, if you will. Um, how does it kind of go from that to, to this? And then does it change throughout? And, and is there kind of ripples for today? I'm, I'm, I'm jamming a lot in the essence of time. Yeah. The, 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 so what we have here is a couple of things happen in the Roman empire. So the, the, that add a degree of concern and an intensity of persecution to the, uh, regarding the Christians. So let, let's just talk about what's happening in the Roman Empire. We've seen what's happened in the second century. We've got this discomfort with Christians, but the second century is the best period. This is the sort of golden age, uh, if not in terms of literature and, uh, and, and poetry and architecture, in terms of uh, the political structure of the empire. We have very, much fewer civil wars. It's not until the end. We have uh, encounters with the barbarians, but the Roman emperors are keeping them at bay. The The frontiers are being maintained. They're being expanded on several occasions. We've got a smooth transition from one emperor to the other. These are the so-called five adoptive emperors. A, a lot of these emperors have very long reigns. They have subtle shifts in policy, but they're all pretty good administrators. They know how to maintain the frontiers. That means that the economic core of the empire uh, is blossoming. So it's a really, really good time. This The so-called market economy, there's a couple of good books that have been out on this recently, is booming uh, within the Roman Empire. We have specialization of industry and trade, money's flowing. Uh, it, it's just, it's a fantastic period of time. And so it's during this period of time when it's more like the emperor's and the Roman governors are like, yeah, we've got this weird thing like Christianity. Yes, it's spreading, but life is good. Things are great. Maybe the purist wants to get those Christians to do what they're supposed to and behave like a good patriot. But for the most part, we're not too terribly concerned. We have a few bouts of martyrdoms, but it's not too intense. Okay, this changes with the death of Marcus Aurelius. We have one of the worst emperors emerge. He's probably in the top five bad emperors. This is Commodus. He's famous from the the um, not-so-good movie, The Fall of the Roman Empire, with Sophia Loren and Stephen Boyd from the 60s, and the much better but still problematic Gladiator with Russell Crowe. It's just a fun movie to watch. But uh, that's the famous guy who likes to get into the gladiatorial ring and fight things like elephants and other animals. So, The only thing I'll say say about that Gladiator movie is that it underscored how terrible of a person Commodus was. He yeah, was yeah. the debauchery was far worse than that movie. But oh my goodness! I know. Yes, indeed. Both uh, Christopher Plummer, who plays the role in the in the old movie, and Joaquin Phoenix do a stupendous job portraying a maniac. And but like you said, he's even worse. You know, some of the things he did wouldn't have been suitable to show on film, uh, or at least they shouldn't be suitable <laughs> to show on film. So Commodus is not a good emperor, and. Um, he uh, sort of does some things that uh, compromise the dynasty and the empire. Uh, and we have a civil war that emerges with his assassination. 
And then we've got the severance. And the severance do a couple of very important things. Severance are ruling from uh, the last part of the second century up to 235. And here's what the severance do. First of all, they maintain the old adoptive emperor's sort of gentle expansion of the empire. It reaches its furthest extent at this point in time. But some cracks are seen in the imperial structure. There's a famous line that Severus tells his sons, um, be harmonious with all men, favor the troops, uh, or excuse me, be harmonious, uh, favor the troops, and scorn all other men. So it's scorn all other men. And it it shows that, hey, what what is Rome? It's kind of like a military... Uh, it's like an imperial military autocracy. Uh, most of the budget goes to funding the legions. And Severus knows this. This is how he legitimized his dynasty by being the last man standing with an army. So he tells his sons, make sure you're in control of the legions. We're not bound together by some sort of ethos. Uh, and it's one of his sons. So the cracks are shown with Severus, but it's one of his sons that does something really important. He needs money. And so he makes all the citizens of the Roman Empire, or all the subjects within the Roman Empire, citizens. Now, that sounds like, oh, that's great. He extends the citizenship. There's a little bit of, this is like the spreading of Roman citizenship, which has been in existence since the days of the Roman Republic. There's a little bit of that going on. But really, what's, what he wants to do is increase his tax base. And citizens pay more taxes than subjects of client kingdoms or uh, of uh, you know attached entities to the empire. But what this also does is citizens are expected to demonstrate more support in traditional ways on behalf of the Roman Empire. So that means theoretically that all these subjects of the empire should be paying homage to the traditional gods and more particularly the imperial cult. He does this, but, but then his successor, uh, one of his successors, a couple, one is also a bad emperor, Heliogabalus, but then his successor after that, Severus Alexander is executed in 235 and the Roman empire enters what's called the third century crisis. It's a disaster. We have, Incursions in the frontiers. The Roman Empire breaks into three. Basically, whoever has a, a legion tries to rush to Rome and defeat the other uh, uh, cl- rival claimants to the imperial title. And we have uh, 26 emperors in a period of about 50 years, which shows you how bad things are. Gaul and Britain break away. You've got a Palmyrian empire uh, by a local dynasty in Egypt, Syria, and Palestine. And you've got the sort of rump middle. And it looks like it's kind of the end. Well, in the midst of this, a couple of emperors are trying to bring restore Roman order, and they intensify the persecution of Christians because they think part of the problems that we have, that we're losing to the barbarians, these, these new rivals, these Sassanians are beating us on the battlefield. Uh, we, uh, the traditional mores have broken down. We need to restore worship of the Roman gods. And now everyone within the empire needs to do this. And so two emperors, Decius and Valerian, intensify the persecutions by adding a bureaucratic element. Everyone needs to have shown how they have worshipped the emperors by uh, producing a certificate. So when you go and you pension this or you offer a sacrifice to the emperors, you're given a certificate. And then you almost think of it like a vaccine passport. You can't get into a restaurant in New York City until you've shown that you have a vaccine card. So that's sort of the way it worked here. It's sort of the same way. You can't be in good standing with the empire until you produce your your little 
Labellus, your your little certificate saying, "I have worshipped uh, the, uh, the imperial court or the, or the Roman gods," and so you have an intensification of persecution. Some Christians say, "Okay, well, we'll do it because we're scared." Some people say, "Well, we'll do it. We don't. We mean. We don't really mean it." But others will say, "No, no. I'm going to prove to everyone that I, I will not have done this. In fact, I'm going to bring my, myself to the attention of the emperors or the or the Roman governors and show that I haven't done this." So we have a couple of rounds of persecutions. The problem is both these emperors die badly. And so we've got a period of, of relax, relaxation of this policy. So again, a precedent's been set, but both Decius and Valerius die. In fact, Valerius is one of the worst ends. He's captured and he's possibly used as a, I think as a, as a footstool by uh, the Sassanian emperor. And so this, um, th- this sort of discredits the policy until the very end of the third century when this really, really talented sort of superhero emperor by the name of Diocletian comes comes around, reorganizes the empire, starts to beat back all of the barbarians. They reconquer. Well, it's, uh, his, a couple of his predecessors have already started to bring back Gaul and Britain and the Palmyrian empire. He reconsolidates all of that. Um, and he, he doesn't die. He keeps living. So that's helpful too. Uh, he's able to identify potential usurpers. He, he creates a whole new system. We're going to have four emperors, two important, two like Augusti, two Caesars underneath them. And he kind of brings it all back together. It's one of these great moments in history when you think the end is coming and yet it doesn't. And one of Diocletian, by this point in time, by the time he's secured his throne in 299, He's conducting sacrifices or he's watching sacrifices in Antioch and they can't, the sacrifices aren't doing what they're supposed to. There's, there are these, these, um, horospexes that are these, um, guys who are looking at the, the innards, the livers of sheep and whatnot, and they're examining them and they, they can't make a decision because the prodigies are not the way they're supposed to go. And someone says, I see Christians making the sign of the cross over there. So, Maybe that's what's causing the pagan, our, our traditional sacrifices, to not do what they're supposed to. And so Diocletian remembers this. It kind of percolates in his mind, and he starts instituting a policy that everyone needs to sacrifice to the gods that are in the court. Everyone needs to sacrifice to the gods that are in the army. And then he considers a note, an edict about persecuting the Christians, and this sets the stage for the great persecution that follows. And in this, he issues an edict. They, it's, a, it's a series of edicts um, where eventually we reach the point where they're actually targeting uh, Christian leaders. So these are bishops and uh, Christian texts. And by this point in time, it's very clear. Christians have rival rituals. They've got baptism. They do communion. Christians have a rival leadership system. They've got bishops and then priests and deacons under them. They have a rival universal claim that all people are bound together by a faith in God. And Diocletian realizes this is a huge problem. We have basically a state within a state, and we have to make sure the Christians do not keep spreading, and we've got to eliminate uh, this rival state with its its own rituals, its own God, its own leadership system, uh, its own sacred texts. We've got to either we've got to bend it to make sure it is underneath the authority of the imperial uh, uh, office and it worships the imperial cult and the traditional gods. And this is this crisis point for Christians uh, in the great persecution, which basically is from 303 for 18 months, pretty intense, 
wherever it's applied. And that's always a big if because it's not easy to apply. Uh, but then also uh, sporadically after that by the followers of Diocletian, guys like Galerius and Valerius Severus and Licinius, uh, these four emperors that are in existence. And this is when we have uh, a, a the most stark contrast between what a Christian is and what uh, the Roman Empire is. And all of it in some really remarkable ways changes with this guy by the name of Constantine. That's uh, a really great set of bullet points to get us to <laughs> the shift uh, in uh, in the, the pagan to the, the Christian world and, and kind of the boiling uh, of the pot of uh, bringing the heat to Christians. Um, we only have a few minutes left. Do you think you can give us a, a quick a quick high level of how things change under Constantine? So Constantine is a complicated fellow. We're not entirely certain what his, what his personal beliefs were, but we know that his father, Constantius, and then when Constantine becomes emperor, we know that they, they have a, they're not ardent persecutors. It's it's probable that Constantius is, is doesn't uh, has no intention of persecuting Christians. That it's either really light or it, it doesn't happen. And Constantius is the Caesar that's working uh, underneath. Uh, I think his name is uh, Maximinus, and he uh, he's, he's not too interested in in, in promulgating the the, uh, the or in executing the edict of persecution. Constantine's family, they are harken back to, uh, they sort of invent a lineage back to, I think it's Claudius II from the uh, second, uh, from the third century in the middle of the third century crisis. And they seem to have a special relationship with, uh, or they claim a special relationship either to Sol Invictus or the sun god of victory or um, to Apollo, if, you're, if you want to have a Greek parallel. And the, the way the story goes is Constantius dies. This is a guy who's, who's seen to have been relatively tolerant uh, of Christians. He's not interested in, in pushing through the persecution. Uh, his son is elevated to the purple by the soldiers. This is a, this is a problem. But the other tetrarchs that Diocletian has established, the other, the other emperors, allow this to happen because they don't want a civil war to break out. And, uh, of course, this isn't going to hold together because, you know, four emperors, each with an army— what's naturally going to happen they're going to they're going to bring themselves to a civil war and this is this is what happens long story short constantine decides to make his bid to get to rome and set himself up as the emperor of the west and he uh, is going to fight against maxentius the, the night before either he i think it's i can't remember if it's before he's i think it's before he's marching to the battle so not not right before the battle but either way uh, he has a dream there's sort of a two part scenario he has a dream that uh, Christ comes to him and says, in this sign, you will conquer. And it's uh, the sign is the, the Cairo. It's a symbol for Christ, but it's also a symbol of, of the cross. And there's another version, and I think we can put them together, where he sees uh, a sign in the clouds. It actually could just be a, a very standard astronomical phenomenon. I can't remember what the name is, but you can, you can see it where there's a on the horizon. It basically looks like a, a globe with a cross. So it's, it's very possible that that's what he's seeing. And then he's interpreting it, right, as a good ancient would do. But it looks like a Cairo. And it's a public sign. And he says, okay, 
I the the Christian God is telling me to become Christian and to conquer under him. And so he has it emblazoned on all the shields of his troops. They go and they fight Maxentius at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. They're victorious. And now Constantine is the emperor uh, of the West. And he's an emperor who is at least friendly to Christianity, but has also adopted Christian symbols and may even be Christian himself. We're not entirely certain, but he might be. And this is very different. This is very new. Overnight, we have a Christian emperor. Whereas before, uh, you know, within a few decades before, emperors are persecuting Christians. There's already an edict of toleration that had happened under one of Diocletian's um, sub-emperors, Galerius. He'd issued it because he got sick and he thought, maybe I'm sick because the Christian God is angry with me, so I'm going to issue an edict of toleration. Well, then he died anyway. But then Constantine makes the allows the edict of toleration to stand and he gets together with the emperor of the east a guy by the name of Licinius and he issues the so-called edict of Milan there's actually no such thing as the edict of Milan if anything it should be called the rescript of Nicomedia because Licinius basically responds to a request about what to do with Christians and he, he alters the policy of persecution and instead empire wide now Christianity will be tolerated and this is the extent to which Constantine goes he wants Christianity to be tolerated. He keeps a lot of the pagan symbology there. He also seems to include some of the uh, Christian symbology, but he sort of holds these two together. And there's a really interesting philosopher at his court, a guy by the name of Lactantius, who lived through the court or lived through the, the great persecution. And Lactantius says, look, you cannot coerce belief. This is a Christian argument for religious toleration. He says, you cannot do it. And this is what the pagans are trying to do. So he recommends to Constantine, what we need to do is forbear when people do not believe the things we ought to believe. But Constantine wants there to be harmony and concord within the Roman Empire, like every good Roman ever since the days of Cicero and before once. And so Lactantius puts forward an argument that you can bring together the philosophical monotheists, so philosophers who believe there's one mind or one God that creates all things, or at least is ordering all things, if not from nothing, because the universe is eternal, but that orders all things and is the embodiment of perfect justice and order. We can bring philosophical monotheists on board with Christian and Jewish monotheism, and this can be the harmony or the concord that informs what is right and true. And then we must forbear private belief or conscience and this is the policy that Constantine basically issues. It's commonly believed that Constantine makes Christianity the official religion of the empire. That's not actually the case at all. In fact, I think you can, and there have been several recent good books on this. Constantine instead does the opposite. He kind of creates, not perfectly, he doesn't know what to do with the Donatist. He learns his lesson by the time he gets to a sect of Christians named the Arians. But he basically authors a position of, monotheistic concord and harmony. That's the goal. But forbearance for those who don't share that belief, be they pagans, be they you know, uh, Christian heretics, etc. When he dies, however, that view goes out the, out the door. We've got his sons and his nephew, who his sons try to make Christianity either Aryan Christianity, they don't believe in their trinity, or Trinitarian Christianity. And they try to use the state, use bishops and members of the political system in the state and control uh, uh, the church. 
Julian the Apostate, his nephew, is called the Apostate because he tries to bring back paganism. Some people say he never could have done it. Other people argue it's possible that Julian could maybe have turned back the clock. I don't know. We don't know because he died on campaign against the Persians. So it's kind of an interesting what if. Uh, but by the time we get to the next round of emperors, the Valentinians, the Theodosians, what we have here is a guy by the name of Theodosius the Great. He's the last emperor of both parts of the empire. And he's the one who makes Christianity the official religion of the empire. And here is when we have a reversal of what it seems like Constantine's trying to put into place. And now the Christians have the ability to become the persecutors of pagans. And this is what happens. And uh, it's unfortunate. It's, it's, it, we sort of wonder what would have happened if it didn't go that way. There are famous Christians who are opposed to the state being used to uh, persecute rival faith systems. For example, uh, Martin of Tours is a famous uh, advocate of the state staying out of coercing the church or coercing belief, but that's not the way it goes. And Theodosius is the one that makes Christianity the official religion of the empire, because by this point in time, Christianity has sufficiently permeated the empire. There's still lots of pagans, there's lots of conflict, but now from here on out, the Christian, the emperors will be officially Trinitarian Christians, and the rest, as we say, is history. Well, that is very interesting. Very, really great synopsis and a lot of color in there that uh, we kind of had a gloss over for time. Uh, a lot we didn't get to, we left a lot on the table, especially with kind of how that the, the state changes under Christianity. But, you know, uh, keeping an eye on time, is there anything else we want to touch upon before we uh, we cut this off? No, I mean, if you had one more question you wanted to ask, otherwise, I think we're, I mean, I, I've, got, I've got a little more time. If you wanted to pose one more, that that's fine with me. Or if you think we, we, we ended at a good note, that's fine. As well. I would I would love to ask one more question, uh, and that's kind of to tie all of it together. So we have an idea of what the state looked like pre-Christianity, right, with Rome, um, and kind of writ large, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, uh, ancient Babylon kind of had this type of, they didn't quite have the same type of clan and, and familial relationships, and, you know, calling back to the ancestors quite how Rome was, they're, they're a little uh, more so uh, intense in that area, as Romans tend to be. Um, but they had the idea of the, the state and religion kind of being one thing um now that kind of christianity is accepted maybe we we can kind of pass fast forward past a little bit towards you know past theodosius maybe you know a little bit closer to justinian and and kind of further on down into the ripples of history how does christianity alter the concept of the state uh and and kind of the government and the order itself and does it does it happen mostly only in the way of like the divine right of kings um, or does it ripple into to many other facets of individual lives and, and how that kind of bubbles up into the, the collective order, I'll put it? This is a difficult question to answer because on the one hand, the ethics that Christianity introduces certainly alter the traditional understanding of the state. On the other hand, this is a very Christian thing that I'm going to say. It's Augustinian, the the sense of the the bishop writer of the um, and North African writer of the book City of God. Humanity still is humanity. So human beings still do the things that humans have always done, and they're still still susceptible to the kinds of injustices 
and violations that humans have always been susceptible to, even if they're Christian. So um, I think what we see is there is a reducing in the necessity of things like glory and honor simply for the sake of honor and conquest as being necessary. But a good leader is still going to want to have glory and honor and conquest. Right. So it's got I mean, Justinian's one of the best examples of this. He, he runs his empire into the ground and, you know, sets up a potential disaster. Uh, the Byzantine empire almost doesn't make it because of his rage to rebuild the Roman empire. Is that Plus a the Christian? Plague. What? And well, the Plus plague the didn't plague. help. Yeah. yeah. The plague yeah. didn't help either, but he'd already made this. He worn his, his empire down with by getting engaged in this like horrible guerrilla warfare in, in Italy at the same time that he's, you know, he should have known this, the Sassanians were going to break the eternal peace. Anytime you make a peace that says it's eternal, know that it's not going to be. But he's got this rage for conquest. Well, is that a Christian virtue? No. Is he a Christian emperor? I don't know what the state of his soul was. I mean, Jesus' notion of the Christian is those who follow him, those who believe in him. Is that, can I make a, a judgment on whether or not? Justin didn't believe that. No, but do I think he's using and harnessing certain Christian symbols and ideas on his behalf? I mean, the passages in Romans 13 and 1 Peter sound really good for a ruler. Hey, I'm here. I'm ordained by God, right? But okay, but, but you also have to promote the good and you have to punish the evil. And so then that gets into questions of, have you properly identified what is evil and what is good? So, you know, do you understand that all humans are equal? And I think this is another this is another element that Christianity introduces, which we have to this day. It's the notion of human equality and human dignity. Those are fundamentally Christian concepts. They're Jewish concepts as well. Why are all human beings equal? Because they're all made by God. Why are all humans? Why do they all have dignity? Because they're all made in the image of God. Did Jesus come down? Merely for the Jews? No. I mean, Paul writes, there's neither Jew nor Greek, uh, neither slave nor free, nor male nor female. So there's this equalizing of humanity that Christianity brings. And there's this idea that every human life has dignity. That is not the case of the classical world. It's not. You have glimmers of it uh, with certain people, but it, it's not the common tendency. Christianity fundamentally alters that. And it also insists that human beings have a soul, and leaders have a responsibility to orient their subjects or their citizen souls toward heaven. There's still two different entities. And I think this is probably the, the biggest institutional difference that Christianity makes after the onset uh, of Constantine is that there is a church and a state. So you have two different entities that exist. Whereas before, you get religious about politics and political about religion or like religion, the, the things we do that are typically seen as ritualistic or related to religio are also seen as being civic and public part of the political process. But Christianity says, no, no, there are two separate institutions. So the Pope Galatius says you've got the princes or you have the emperor and then you have the bishops. And these two different institutions are both under the authority of God. And both the emperor and the bishops, they have different spheres. Sometimes these spheres overlap, but one is a spiritual authority and the other is a temporal authority. And they're both responsible for orienting their citizens toward 
their souls toward God. The temporal authority does so by punishing murder, by uh, taking care of the poor when possible, by uh, having laws that promote honesty and fidelity in marriage and relationships between human beings, by having honest commerce, uh, by protecting people with armies and navies. Right. The the spiritual authority of the bishops, they uh, establish a rule of life for uh, for every Christian. How they gather together in prayer. They're the institution of mercy. They really take care of the poor. They have people, the deacons are dedicated to taking care of widows and orphans and people who don't have enough money to take care of themselves. And they they participate together in rituals like uh, the sacrament of communion and the sacrament where they celebrate the Lord's Supper, um, where they uh, they baptize people. And these two separate authorities emerge in the medieval world. And that's the that is the separation of church and state that exists uh, in the medieval world. That is a fundamentally Christian concept. And it's also a constitutional concept that has emerged that these two different entities provide a check and a balance against each other. And in some ways, that makes the medieval conception of the world and the kingdom of God different from the ancient and even from the modern, where that distinction has been erased. And I think it's that medieval constitutionalism which might provide some really interesting thinking about how we can do uh, pluralism in the modern age. But I've just opened a really interesting question that I certainly have no time to be able to answer. So I'll leave it at that. Uh, you're going to leave me hanging because that is so fa- that's such a fascinating uh, idea. The, the two things that, I, that this is, well, three things, I suppose, that this is all really sparking in me is um, my, my personal definition. I think everyone should have their own personal definition of things. And my personal definition of truth is that it is paradox. So when you get to a point of something that doesn't make sense to you, uh, that's probably closer to truth than finding something that makes sense to you. If you're if you're holding on to something that's real and you're 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 sure of it, um, that might not necessarily be true because you're kind of opening yourself up to blind spots in other ways, which kind of calls back to what we were saying earlier with you know kind of a challenge of our time being technology lulling us into ways of thinking where you don't even realize it until it becomes kind of absolute. Um, and the other is I think that there's a lot of virtue in the obvious. Um, and this whole conversation is making me think of how amazing and obvious of a statement of the separation of church and state was uh, as far insofar as the U.S. Constitution, because it, it seems like it was something that was kind of percolating and kind of there, even in the way they were talking about the separation between bishops authority and the state authority. And um, you could even start getting into the, you know, Protestant revolutions and how, how that cements it and or even unifies it in some places like the Anglican Church. Um but just simply writing it down kind of set us in a way of saying, you know, this is the way that the obvious way of the virtues of how we've been functioning, let's, let's cement it into a, a document and, and find ways to, to kind of permeate that throughout. Um, and perhaps the those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it that we're kind of marching into is how that type of absolute uh, dogmatic kind of um, way of life of thinking about all things into one single denominator um, it's kind of cropped its way back up again. So lots of, you've given us a lot to think about and I'm, di- I'm going to be dying to read your books so that I can understand more of the ways in which that medieval time, um, the thought of the medieval times can percolate to now, which is a statement I don't think I've ever actually said before. Well, great. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. Um, I will let you know as soon as, as soon as the, we're, we're in the middle of it, as I'm writing the, <laughs> As, I, as I'm writing during my, my time, my fellowship now, 
at Princeton. Um, it's been great being on the show. We've set, I think we feel like we've set up a, fun, a lot of really fun questions about constitutionalism, about uh, Christianity's relationship to politics, how it got us from how we go from the ancient world to to today. Um, I, I I love your 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 closing remark about the importance of history because it it gives us this kind of humility about how much do we understand and what are the possibilities that humans. Um, the, the the possibly bad things that humans can do, the possibly good things that humans can do. That's a fundamentally Christian concept that God is the author of 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 history, and that He comes into history and makes a difference there. And Christianity itself is historical in the sense that it always looks back to the words uh, of the New Testament about Jesus, who is this entrance into uh, the world as a historical person. And that's a challenge. Even if you don't believe that, that's a challenge wrestling through that. Uh, what, what do we do with Christianity? Uh, and hopefully what we do is we inquire, we search. Um, I hope, I would hope that that searching leads to, the, the searching for truth leads to really wrestling with um, what the claims that Christianity is making, not only about who God is, why humans exist, but also how we interact with one another because Christianity has some really, really good answers to those questions. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate that. I don't consider myself necessarily religious. I was raised Catholic, um, but I cannot shake the Christian ethic for the life of me to the point where I've completely come full circle and embraced it. Cause you know, I think it's better not to throw away the baby with the bathwater in a lot of ways. Um, and so much of our this Western is Tom world. Holland's th- yeah, this is Tom Holland's argument, right? And in, in, in his in his recent book, is, is he realizes how sort of the foundations of modern society have been laid by Christianity, and we, a lot of our assumptions are Christian. So then the question is, okay, what do we what do we do with that? Yep, I'm a huge fan of Tom Holland. Actually, he's the one who I I kind of snickered at this idea at first, and he brought me completely back around to it. Uh, both I both was kind of diverging. And coming that way already, just from uh, first principles, and then his his groundwork for the, all of Western society and kind of the ripples from Christianity is 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 so fascinating, and especially how much of a sheer and utter uh, turn it was. And and also the historian Felipe Fernandez Armesto, when I was having coffee with him uh, about a year ago, he uh, laid out a really compelling argument to change my mind, uh, which definitely pushed me a little further. But with that, we are definitely over. Um, Thank you very much. I uh, appreciate your time. And if there's anything else, otherwise we can we can pause the recording here. Jr. I really appreciate it. I appreciate being on the show. It's been a delight. And thank you. Thank you.